History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and this is Episode 8, Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 2. In our last episode, we followed Bernal Diaz as he helped explore Central America in their Cordoba Expedition of 1517 and their Grijalva Expedition in 1518. Diaz's book, The Conquest of New Spain, has served as the main source of information for our story so far. We last left our Spanish friends standing in the middle of a native temple in the harbor of San Juan de Calua and staring in horror at the Halloween-esque what-in-the-world-is-going-on type of scene inside. Two boys had just been sacrificed to the god Tetzcalipuca, one of the many gods found in Mesoamerican religion. Naturally, the Spanish were freaked out, especially when the only explanation they got from their interpreter is that the citizens of the village had ordered the sacrifice. That's all we get from Diaz about this. He quickly turns the reader's attention to the commercial side of things. But I have to wonder how much this weighed on the minds of the Spanish. From here on out, they will definitely try to get the natives to stop sacrificing humans wherever they go. Consider this, though. The Spanish are in unfamiliar territory among a people that would casually murder members of their community for the glory of their strange gods. They did not know how the natives would react to their presence at each encounter, and now they find out that there is some faraway ruler who has been keeping track of their movements and has the power to command armies and to tell the people to give up their gold. Had to be a little unnerving, at least. Unfortunately, Diaz doesn't dwell on the psychological aspect of all this. He focuses on the gold, or rather disappointedly on the lack of gold at this one spot. For the next seven days, the Spanish stayed in San Juan de Calua, trying to trade with the natives, but Diaz states that the natives didn't have much gold in the first place, and what they did have was so inferior, they didn't really bother to hold on to it. Finally, they decided to leave and keep following the coastline. A few days later, the Spanish arrived at a place they named the Canoe River. After dropping anchor at the mouth of the river, Diaz states that the smallest of their vessels was approached by 16 large canoes full of natives who were all equipped and ready for battle. The natives quickly tried to cut some of the cables on the ship, intending, as Diaz says, to try to carry the ship off. The Spanish repelled the attack, quickly weighed anchor, and noped right out of there. The group decided that the best course of action would be to return to Cuba, but there were a few small problems. One of their boats had sprung a leak, and winter was also coming, and the men were getting sick of the sea. They sailed on to the Tanala River, promptly renamed it the Rio de San Antonio, and got to work trying to repair their ship. Here they were set upon by yet another group of natives, though this time the natives brought fish, fruit, and cornbread to give the Spaniards instead of other more pointy gifts. Grijalva, the Spanish commander, treated the natives kindly and gave them some of the ever-present green glass beads as thanks. Seemingly always in the entrepreneurial spirit, the Spanish also let the natives know that they would be willing to trade some of their goods if they were brought gold. The natives complied and soon returned with gold, but, as Diaz laments, their gold was again of an inferior quality and the Spanish only gave them some imitation corals in trade instead. Other natives soon got in on the act, though, bringing all kinds of golden items to trade for the highly prized green glass beads. Soon the Spanish noticed that each of the natives carried an axe, highly polished and looking like it was meant either for battle or as some kind of ornamentation. 
The blades were shiny, and they looked like they were metal, so naturally the Spanish believed them to be made of gold and began trading for them. Diaz tells us that in the span of two days, they had amassed 600 of the axes and thought they were doing pretty good for themselves. While this is all going on, Mr. Diaz decides to take credit also for planting the first orange seeds in New Spain. He humbly tells us that he planted them after he laid down at the top of one of the tall temples to get away from the incessant mosquitoes. He sounds pretty proud of them too, stating that when he returned later to this area, the trees are flourishing. Way to go, sir. No scurvy for you. All too soon, the Spanish set sail for Cuba and arrived 40 days later. The explorers turned over their loot so the Spanish authorities could claim one-fifth as, as the emperor's share. The crown officials started to try to take one-fifth of those nice shiny axes as well, but discovered that they were not gold at all, but were made instead of copper. The officials weren't too happy, but the explorers seemed to have chalked it up to an instance of caveat emptor and laughed it off. Here is where the Gerhalva expedition ends. But within days, another was being put together. Diego Velazquez, the governor of Cuba, was generally happy with the results and sent a ship off to Spain to ask permission to send out more expeditions and even to found some new colonies. The seeking permission part was mostly a formality, as Diaz claims that the governor had ten ships getting ready for the next expedition. All of the provisions were being gathered, bread, tobacco, smoked bacon, as well as weapons and ammunition, and of course, green glass beads. The problem was that now Diego Velazquez could not make up his mind on who should lead this new expedition. Now it sounds silly, but whoever the governor chose to lead the expedition usually had the governor's trust. There was a lot going into something like this. Think of it almost like a sponsorship. If someone sponsors you for something, they want you to make sure that you represent them, their brand, and their ideas as closely as possible. We've all heard stories of athletes or other celebrities who have lost sponsors for an inappropriate statement, tweet, or social media post. Those companies expect certain behaviors and don't hesitate to cut ties with individuals who don't meet those expectations. They are willing to pay to have someone represent them and in turn hope that their sponsorship can help generate additional sales or exposure for their products. The same could be said for the Spanish in this time period. Governor Diego Velazquez was helping to finance this new expedition and putting a lot of money into getting everything ready in the hope that he would make even more money once the expedition returned. So he wanted someone he could trust to lead this new trip, someone who would represent him well, someone who wouldn't go rogue and try to carve out his own little mini-kingdom once out from under the immediate control of the governor far away on Cuba. Finally, Velazquez settled on Hernando Cortez. Some of Cortez's people had been going to work, trying to convince the governor that Cortez was the best person for the job. They talked about how great he was, how courageous he was, how excellent his beard was, how Cortez was just the best and the most proper person that the governor could ever entrust to lead the new trip. How Cortez, again, was this the best and the most trustworthy guy the governor could ever ask for. Okay, maybe not the beard one, but the portraits of the man certainly are enough to make a guy jealous. It was not a universally accepted appointment, however. Diaz states that there were some people, including Velazquez's own family members, who didn't approve. One of the governor's relatives even went so far as to pay a jester to follow the governor around and harass him about his choice. This didn't sway the governor, not yet anyway, 
because Diaz states that the appointment of Cortez was pleasing in the eyes of God. So Cortez gets the job and he immediately starts gathering all kinds of trading goods, weapons, and ammunition. Crossbows, matchlocks, powder, cannons, all that fun stuff. Now you might be wondering why they keep bringing crossbows when matchlocks are available, but keep in mind that these crossbows are the improved version of the ones that could punch through plate armor. They were also easier to reload and aim and more reliable when you reloaded them. So the crossbows definitely had some value on an expedition like this. Anyway, Diaz also tells us that Cortez began to pay a little bit of attention to how he looked. Cortez already had a winning smile, but I guess he decided to match his clothes to the smile. Diaz mentions that his new captain used money he didn't have to buy himself a stately robe adorned with gold trains and stuck a bunch of feathers in his cap. But instead of calling it macaroni, he attached a golden medal to, the, to his hat to really up his hat game. But like Diaz said, Cortez was spending money that he didn't have in order to finance stuff like this. Others that were going on this expedition were selling everything they had in order to buy themselves more weapons and a horse if they could. Still others were buying themselves extra provisions like the best food on earth, bacon, and other lesser foods. <laughs> By the time the expedition was ready to head out, it consisted of 300 soldiers. But not everything was going swimmingly. Remember all those people who were against the appointment of Cortez? Well, they finally got to Velazquez. Diaz claims that some of Velazquez's relatives were upset at being passed over for the command of the expedition, and that Cortez's marriage to Velazquez's sister-in-law were the two prominent points of contention between the two men. Now, whatever he was, Cortez was not a moron and decided to portray himself as the picture of loyalty to the governor, trying to remind the governor of all the riches he would gain if he would just let Cortez stay in charge. Meanwhile, Cortez did everything he could to get the expedition ready to sail as fast as he could. Finally, in February 1519, everything was ready. The soldiers attended mass and then set sail for Trinidad. At the last minute, however, Velasquez changed his mind and sent orders to Trinidad trying to strip command away from Cortez and appoint someone else. Cortez blatantly ignored these orders and set sail with a fleet of 11 ships for the, for the mainland. Diaz claims that when they set sail, Cortez had around 508 men, 16 war horses, and 4 cannons along for the ride. A few days later, the first couple of ships arrived on the island of Cozumel. Diaz was on one of those first ships and states that upon arriving, the soldiers naturally went ashore. He notes that they did not meet any natives on the, on the beach, and after traveling a short distance inland, they came upon a village. The natives had all mostly fled before the advancing Europeans, but had left behind their food and other valuables. Diaz claims that the men grabbed some of the loot from the nearby temple and took three natives prisoner. This angered Cortez, who arrived two days after this first wave of explorers. Cortez ordered the men to return the natives' property, saying that robbing them was no way to show the indigenous people that they wanted to be friends. He also set the prisoners free, asking them to bring the chief of the village to talk with him. The chief showed up the next day, and friendship was experienced by all. But something bothered Cortez. On previous expeditions, the natives of this particular area looked at the Spaniards and, I imagine, tried to come up with a word that they could use as sort of a label for these strange new people. 
much in the same way that the Spanish used the word Indians to describe people from the Yucatan all the way to Florida. The thing that bothered Cortez, though, was the word the natives used. Castellan. Castellan. What could it mean? The Mayan people of the Campeche region also seemed to use this word when referring to the Spanish. Cortez finally asked some of the natives and was informed that there were two Spaniards who served some nearby Mayan chiefs as slaves. Now, let's rewind the clock a bit. Back in 1511, eight years before the arrival of Cortez, a Spanish ship carrying 15 men and two women ran into a rock and got stuck. They were then taken prisoner by the natives. Some of the unfortunate captives were sacrificed to their gods. Others were worn out from overwork. Two of the Spaniards escaped from their captors, however, men named Gonzalo Guerrero and Geronimo de Aguilar. Unfortunately for those two, they were soon captured again, and the two men had been treated as slaves for the last eight years. Cortez and his friends, understandably, wanted to go to the aid of their fellow Europeans, but were informed that there would be a price to pay to the Mayan chiefs who owned them. All different kinds of beads were sent to try to ransom the Spaniards. There was also a letter from Cortez telling the captives to use the beads to buy their freedom and to come meet up with the main force as they moved toward Patonchan and Tabasco, two places that the Grijalva expedition stopped at the previous year. Geronimo de Aguilar was excited to be set free and went to tell his friend Gonzalo Guerrero. But Guerrero refused to come and told Aguilar, quote, Brother Aguilar, I have united myself here to one of the females of this country, by whom I have three children, and am, during wartime, as good as a cazique or a chief. Go, and may God be with you. For myself I could not appear again among my countrymen. My face has already been disfigured, according to the Indian custom, and my ears have been pierced. What will my countrymen say if they saw me in this attire? Only look at my three children. What lovely creatures they are. Pray give me some of your glass beads for them, which I shall say, my brethren sent them from my country. End quote. All right, so let's unpack this quote, because there's a lot here. First, to make sure that we're all on the same page, Mr. Guerrero was captured in 1511, eight years ago in our story, and has been living with the Mayan people ever since. He was then offered the chance to return to the Spanish thanks to the benevolence of Cortez, but instead of going back to the familiarity and comforts of what he once knew, Mr. Guerrero decided that this new life with the Maya was better than what he had in Cuba or in Europe. What could have caused this change in priorities for this former conquistador that he would refuse to go rejoin his European brethren? Well, let's get the obvious reason out of the way. At some point along the way, he met a girl, who just so happened to be the daughter of the local chief, by the way, got married and had at least three kids. That should rearrange anyone's priorities. And it is obvious that he loves his children, as he wants to give them the green glass beads that were meant to buy his freedom, which is pretty sweet. As these children were born from the union of a European and a Mayan, Guerrero's children are regarded as some of the first mestizo children in Mexico. There are a couple more reasons, though, that lie in the little speech I quoted earlier. Guerrero says that during wartime, he is as good as a chief. We know that Guerrero was a sailor from southern Spain, but not much else is known about his life prior to his appearance here in the New World. Unless he was a landowner or had a lot of money, it is reasonable to assume that here among the Maya he has it better off than among European society. 
Here he has earned a level of respect and honor that he would not have had amongst his Spanish brethren. Sure, he may have suffered a little bit while he was earning that freedom, but the point is that he was given a chance to ascend the social ladder that he wouldn't have had back home. For him, an outsider to be regarded as a chief during wartime would have been seen as a high honor, especially for someone coming into such a warlike and violent society. Wartime chiefs commanded the attention and respect of the warriors that served them, so for Guerrero to earn that kind of power speaks to his ability as a warrior and the apparent meritocracy of the Mayan people. The next thing is that Guerrero has had his face tattooed, his ears pierced, and he is dressed in the local Mayan custom. Based on his words, Guerrero doesn't seem to think that his Spanish friends would look too kindly on him with these changes to his person. Lastly, I'm going to circle back around to his family, specifically his wife. The daughter of the local chief, she wasn't going to just put up with anybody coming in and trying to convince her husband to leave her and her family. In my book, Diaz records her as angrily speaking to Aguilar, saying, quote, Only look at that slave there, speaking of Aguilar. He has come to take away my husband from me. Mind your own affairs and do not trouble yourself about us, end quote. So she wasn't going to sit idly by and allow her husband to be taken from her. She was going to stand up and say something about it, and by referring to Aguilar as that slave, at least remind Aguilar of his position in her society. Guerrero remained behind with his family, thoroughly comfortable with his new life, but Aguilar would eventually make it back to the Cortez expedition where he would serve as a translator. Now we need to skip ahead in the story a little bit, as we could very easily get bogged down in the minutia of the adventures that happened in each little village. Suffice to say that the Spanish were greeted warmly in some villages and were mercilessly attacked in others. Men fought valiantly and were wounded, as is normal in battle, but there is also a sort of almost throwaway line from Diaz about a different malady that was affecting some of the men. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about some of the things that the New World gave to the Old World, things like pumpkins and tomatoes. But in this little throwaway line, we see another thing that the New World gave. Disease. Diaz states, quote, There were also six or seven of our men, all young and otherwise strong fellows, who were attacked with such severe pains in the groins that they could not walk without support. No one could guess the cause of this. It was only said that they had lived too freely at Cuba, and that the pain was occasioned by the heat and the weight of their arms. Cortez, therefore, ordered them again on board. End quote. They lived too freely in Cuba. That's a nice way to put it. I didn't do too much research into what specific disease that could have been, because, honestly, I didn't want to stumble across any pictures. But yeah, that's not a really discreet way of saying that they were paying for their good times. Anyway. Eventually, the Spanish found themselves in the area of Tabasco, in the middle of a vicious battle. In the middle of the chaos, Cortez and his cavalry galloped into the middle of the fray to help save some beleaguered soldiers. Diaz says of this encounter, quote, When we, who were hotly engaged with the enemy, espied our cavalry, we fought with renewed energy, while the latter, by attacking them in the rear at the same time, now obliged them to face about. The Indians, who had never seen any horses before, could not think otherwise than that horse and rider were one body. Quite astounded at this, to them so novel a sight, 
they quitted the plane and retreated to a rising ground. End quote. Here we have first-hand evidence of the native population's reaction to the horse. Now, keep in mind the horse is not native to the Americas at all. The natives were so weirded out by this new creature that they left the battlefield, abandoning their wounded. Diaz says that they counted about 800 natives dead or wounded at this one battlefield, but that only two Spaniards had been killed in the battle. Now, normally, I would be a little skeptical of these numbers and would say something like, you can never trust the sources when they throw out big numbers of dead enemies and only a few of their own guys dead. But here are a couple of things that are happening that make me think that this isn't as implausible as other scenarios that we've discussed. First, we've already mentioned the horses, but their contribution can't be ignored. Like I said, the natives had never seen any creature like this in the history of ever, and to my knowledge didn't have anything like it in their everyday life or in their mythology. The closest domesticated animal they may have known about may have been the llamas from South America. What's more, they had never seen the abilities and methods that horses were used against foot soldiers. And these are war horses, mind you. Big trained, powerful creatures that could easily carry a knight in full armor, trample someone underfoot, or charge through the ranks, spreading chaos and confusion. Second, Diaz mentions that many of the natives fell to their cannon. This should come as no surprise, as cannon fire can be incredibly effective against soldiers marching in tight formation. Swap out the soldiers with clusters of lightly armored enemies who aren't familiar with and had never seen the destructive power of these fully armed and operational battle cannons. Diaz mentions that the artillerymen wrecked havoc, since the natives tended to bunch up into nice targets, and they were able to fire into them to their heart's content. Third, I haven't mentioned it yet, but Diaz is writing his narrative in response to other literature about the conquest that was being published around this time. In particular, Diaz is writing to clarify some of the misconceptions being written by one Francisco Lopez de Gomera, who had written about the expedition already. Diaz, therefore, has no reason to try and inflate those numbers. He is trying to present the definitive, true account of what actually happened. Finally, as we'll see in a second, the natives themselves confirmed they had lost 800 dead in the battle. So there's that. Alright, moving on. The battle happens, and the Spanish do really well, and are saved by the arrival of the horses and the booms of the cannons. They eventually met with the native leaders of the area, who not only confirmed the number of dead warriors, but also begged Cortez to allow them to bury them. Cortez agreed, and the natives gathered and burned and buried their dead, while the Spanish looked on. While watching all of this, Diaz tells us that Cortez had a light bulb moment and came up with a plan. Cortez said, quote, It appears to me, gentlemen, that the Indians stand in awe of our horses and imagine that these and our guns alone fight the battle. A thought has just struck me which will confirm them in this notion." End quote. Now, I imagine Cortez telling his men this plan with the kind of grin you would see on Wile E. Coyote as he's trying to capture the Roadrunner. The only difference is, Cortez's plan will work. At the next meeting, with 40 of the native chiefs, Cortez put on quite a show. He began by reminding them that in every interaction he had sought to make peace with the natives, and they had insisted on attacking him and his men over and over again. Cortez, after all, was a servant of Emperor Charles, 
and they were almost to the point of killing everyone in the area in retaliation for the constant attacks. Actually, you know what? You natives should give us whatever assistance we need, or we will unleash our cannons on you, and they hurt a lot, don't they? It was at this exact moment that Cortez gave some sort of signal, and the largest and loudest cannon the Spanish had was fired. An extremely loud explosion tore through the still air, followed by the sound of the cannonball flying over their heads. This understandably was frightening to the chiefs who had never experienced anything like this. While they were trying to compose themselves, a large stallion was brought into the meeting area and secured close by. At the same time, a mare was brought and positioned behind the native chiefs. The stallion, smelling the mare, began to stamp the ground, neigh, and had its eyes fixed on the native chiefs, who unknowingly were between the stallion and the mare. The natives were again freaked out as this massive warhorse seemed to be threatening them. Seeing their fear, Cortez calmly walked over to the animal and just as calmly gave the reins to a servant. The excited stallion was led away, and I imagine the chiefs were able to breathe again. Cortez's translator then told them that Cortez had ordered the animal not to attack the chiefs. A theatrical display worthy of Bugs Bunny? Most certainly. Was it effective? Absolutely. Diaz claims that the natives were now enthusiastic in their talks of peace between the two peoples, and they promised to return the following day with lots of gifts and valuable things. With profound reverence, the Spaniards were presented with cloaks, shiny diadems and earrings, and even a few ladies. They then readily complied with Cortez's demands to destroy their idols, to stop their abhorrent human sacrifices, and to learn about Christianity. Discussion soon followed. Cortez used this opportunity to gain as much information as he could about the land and its people from these enthusiastically helpful chiefs. They told Cortez about Mexico, that it was a land full of gold and other shiny things, and about Montezuma, its ruler. Cortez, in turn, told them all about the advantages the natives would have if they would pledge themselves to the service of Emperor Charles in Europe. In a move that I would charitably describe as wanting to save their own skin, the natives declared that they would serve this new emperor and become his first vassals in the territory of New Spain. By now we are in late March 1519, and Cortez and his men soon bid their new friends goodbye and sailed away from Tabasco. They had received much on this stop, lots of indigenous foods, valuable trinkets and shiny things, female companionship, new friends under the emperor, and crucially, information about the surrounding area and its people. They had left behind a couple of things as well, spe specifically a large wooden cross in the center of the village and the replacement of the native belief system with Christianity. But I have to wonder how long both of those things actually lasted after the Spanish and their big horses and frightening cannons sailed away, but I digress. Now at this point, I need to mention someone who played a pivotal role in the Spanish advance into Mexico and the eventual negotiations and communications between Cortez and Montezuma. Her name was La Malinche, also known by her Christian name as Donna Marina. She was one of the 20 ladies given as slaves to the Spanish at Tabasco, and would eventually give Cortez a son named Martin. Her role as an interpreter earned her great amounts of respect among the Spanish, so much so that the Donna of her Christian name, Donna Marina, is actually a title usually reserved for the nobility. 
Naturally, her close involvement with the Spanish has complicated her representation since the Spanish conquest. She has been seen as a traitor to her people, the mother of Mexico, a treacherous woman, a victim of encroaching Europeans, and a symbol of European domination. In Aztec documents, she is always portrayed at Cortez's side, and some Aztec legends connect La Melinche slash Donna Marina with the weeping woman, La Llorona. The legend tells the tale of a woman who is kept out of heaven because she drowned her children after her nobleman of a husband left her for a younger woman. La Llorona is said to be a ghostly woman wearing a white dress and veil, wandering around weeping and searching for the bodies of her children. That's the basic version of the legend anyway. One version of the story claims that this is actually La Malinche, who killed her children by Cortez when he left her to marry a younger Spanish woman. In any case, La Girona has persisted in legend ever since the conquest. On Thursday, April 21st, 1519, Hernan Cortez and his men reached the island of San Juan de Ulua, a harbor spot that overlooks present-day Veracruz. Almost immediately, they were visited by emissaries of the great Aztec chieftain Montezuma, who asked who the Spanish were and what they wanted from his country. Through his interpreters, Cortez told Montezuma's men that the Spanish were only here to trade and make friends, not to hurt them or steal from them. Satisfied with that answer, the emissaries left to report back. The next day, on Good Friday, the Spanish conquistadors came ashore, built an altar for the performing of mass, and built a few modest huts for themselves. On Easter Sunday, the group was approached by two governors of the Mexican Empire, a man named Tuthlil and a man named Quitlapitoc, and I know that I'm mis mispronouncing those names. <laughs> These two governors had come from Montezuma to ask again who the Spanish were and what they were doing here. Cortez claimed that once again they had come in the name of the Emperor Charles and they were Christians. Cortez then asked if it would be possible for him to go and meet Montezuma personally and deal directly with him. Tuthlil stated that it would not be possible at this time, but that he had brought gifts for the Europeans. Diaz tells us that these costly presents were well received, and then in a little bit of one-upsmanship, Cortez brought his gifts forward for Montezuma. Among other things, Cortez's gifts for Montezuma included an ornate armchair fitted with precious stones that the Spanish just happened to have with them. Honestly, who lugs an ornate chair around on an exploratory mission? Cortez, apparently. Emperor Montezuma was supposed to sit in that chair when Cortez finally was able to meet him. Tuthlil accepted the gifts, but refused to give an answer on when Cortez would be able to actually meet the Mexican emperor. Tuthlil also had drawings made of the Spanish, the men, the horses, the cannons, the dogs, and everything else they could see. Cortez, meanwhile, planned to put on a special show for the Mexican ambassadors. Once again, he decided to show off the power of his cannon. He had the largest cannon that he had filled with extra powder and took the ambassadors to the top of a high hill. The cannon was fired and, of course, the extremely loud explosion terrified Cortez's guests. Good old Cortez and his intimidating theatricality. One of the last things that Diaz mentions about this particular visit is of particular interest. Diaz tells us that when Tuthlil saw one of the Spanish helmets, he remarked that it looked a lot like the helmets that the warrior god Huitzilopochtli wore. 
Montezuma would certainly like to take a look at it. Cortez ordered that the helmet be given to Toothleal and asked that the helmet be filled with gold dust that he could take back to Europe. This guy will ask for anything, won't he? Toothleal took his leave and hurried back to Montezuma. Upon seeing everything, Diaz tells us, quote, The great Montezuma was vastly astonished at everything he heard and saw, and yet he was pleased. But when at last he espied the cask, or the helmet, and compared it with that of the idol Huitzilopochtli, he no longer doubted for an instant that we belonged to that people whom his forefathers had prophesied would, one time or other, come and subdue the country. End quote. Diaz seems to really enjoy leaning into the grand prophetic narrative, doesn't he? Anyway, a week later, Toothleal returned bringing yet more gifts, highlighted by a wagon wheel-sized golden plate to represent the sun, an even larger silver plate to represent the moon, and even the helmet filled with gold dust just as Cortez had asked. Still, though, Cortez's request to see Montezuma was denied. And that's where we'll end our story this time. As always, thanks and shout-outs to everyone who has listened and recommended the show to their friends, relatives, pets, and action figures. Keep it up, and don't forget that you can find this podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Play. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, or declarations of independence, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com or through the Facebook and Instagram page. Just search History on the Side and enjoy. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time for Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 3.